now in the armor of God. We're moving to the next piece of kit, as the Brits would call it. Uh, Therefore, take up (laughs) the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Took us three weeks to get through that. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness and bind your feet with the preparation for the gospel of peace. Now, there's a lot of different, if you look in your Bibles, you'll have bunch of different translations. This is a very strange phrase that Paul uses here. Um, and actually, if most of them say shod, you know, shod your feet. I thought shod. What does shod even mean? So I looked up. <laughs> What's the definition of shod? Past tense of shoe. I, thought, I didn't know shoe had a past tense. You know, It's like, these are my shoes. I don't wear them more. They're my shods. I don't know what exactly that means. But it's like a farrier with a horseshoe. That's what, you know, shoeing a horse. That's what he's talking about. But if you look at the original Greek, what he actually says is bind up your feet. And if you know how the Roman soldiers' sandals looked, that makes sense. Because they had the sandal, and they had this wrap that went around their leg. They kind of, kind of half up or, or up to like the, the, the calf area. It offered a little bit of protection as well, a little bit of support. So they would bind up their feet. But it's interesting, he says, bind up your feet with the preparation, some translations will say readiness, for the gospel of peace. Like, man, that's a mouthful there. You know, it's not like something really easy like the you know, the breastplate of righteousness. That's simple. That's simple to grasp. So I I went to look at these two things. Now, gospel is a word that shows up actually in the Old Testament and New Testament. A different word, but that gets translated. Gospel means good news. We know that. Um, Good news. So good news, the proclamation of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's a New Testament definition of it. When it's used in the Old Testament, it just means good news. Gospel, good news. Uh, So that's what it is. But what's this peace? You know, because it's a gospel of peace. What does that mean? Well, there is actually a specific definition of the word peace that is the Messiah's peace or the way that leads to peace. And so I believe that what what Paul is saying here is you need to bind up your feet. Now, pause on that for a moment. Sandals are really, really important if you're a fighter, especially in those days. Without your shoes or your sandals, you don't go. You can defend without your shoes. It's really hard to attack without your shoes. Because you'll be stepping on things that you don't want to step on. So if, if ever you know, you're, you're sword fighting and you got caught off guard, you didn't get your f- shoes on, you're probably not advancing. So if we're going to advance as an army, we have to have the sandals or the shoes of the gospel of peace. What is that? And ready, ready with it. Ready with prepar- you know, prepared. We're prepared with the gospel of peace. What is he talking about? He's actually calling back to another scripture. He does this again in Romans, but there's a scripture in Isaiah that says this. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news. That's a, you know, back then that was just good news. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. So this is actually a prophetic word from Isaiah that Paul's catching up and saying, this is what it is. Your feet, your movement is supposed to bring with you good news of three things, happiness, peace, and salvation. Those three things. That's God's message. Happiness or joy, peace, and salvation. That's your message. That is not the message of the world. The message of the world, honestly, especially around here, you'll hear this said a lot, kind of can be summed up this way. Well, life sucks and then you die. How many of you have heard that, right? That's just like, people will say that. That's, that's what it is. That's the devil's message. That's what he wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that life's just terrible and then you die. And then you're you're gone, so you might as well grab everything you can while you're here. Because that's the next part of that. If life sucks and then you die, then this is it. And you just go out and have all the fun you want. There used to be a, um, 
beer called Schlitz Beer. The only reason I know this is because they used to advertise on the football games. They used to have a thing, grab all the gusto you can, you know. And it's like, that's what it is. That's really what this is saying. Well, you need to go out and grab as much as you can because that's it. That's not God's message. God's message is one of peace, joy, and salvation. He's saying, I have peace that the world can't understand. I'll bring you joy that nothing can touch. And I'll bring you salvation that goes far beyond this world. That's the gospel message. The problem is that we've heard this so much that it no longer moves us at all. If we're an army that's supposed to be moving forward with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we're not doing a very good job of it because I don't know how much of us even trust it anymore. It's become so trite in our culture where in John 3.16 is a sign you hold up in the end zone of a football game that you know, we just kind of take all this stuff for granted. And so I want to spend some time talking about the gospel because if we don't get excited about the gospel and understand why it is just revolutionary then we really won't be taking our, our fight to the enemy and we'll be sitting back and waiting for them to come to us because we'll have no shoes on. So in order for us to have shoes on, we have to get excited about the gospel again. We have to realize that the gospel is not what we've made it in our heads. There's a, there's a part of the gospel that's really kind of exciting. Now, they would have known that better in Paul's day because they lived under the law and then the gospel came to free them from the law. But we don't know what that means. So I want to read, I know some of you don't like being read to, my apologies, my apologies to you, but I'm going to read the entire chapter of 2 Corinthians 3, because Paul talks at some length here, and he's, he jumps back and forth between law and grace, law and grace, law and grace. And, and this juxtaposition, I think, is interesting, and I want to jump off that and kind of do a deep dive of it. Now, I'm reading this out of a translation that's called the New International Reader's Version, because it just reads so easy there. And so, um, you know, those of you who are following along the, the, the church Bibles or something. That's the NASB. It'd be a little different. But here it is. Are we beginning to praise ourselves again? Some people need letters that speak well of them. Do we need these kind of letters either to you or from you? No. You yourselves are our letter. You are written on our hearts. Everyone knows you and reads you. You make it clear that you are a letter from Christ. You are the result of our work for God. You are a letter written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. By the way, that should be us. People should say that about us. Like, you can look at them and you can see the spirit of the living God. And if we're not different, there's something wrong with our Christianity. If people don't know we're different, then there's something wrong with our Christianity. But he's saying, look, we don't need to, comp- you know, we don't need to do anything about, hey, look how great we are. Well, here's how we know. We left you in, in Corinthians and you guys are thriving as Christians. That's how we know our ministry is working. We don't need anything more than that. You guys are saved, and you're, and you're good Christians, and that is the testimony. That's all we need. He said, you are a letter written not on tablets made out of stone, but on human hearts. Through Christ, we can be sure of this before God. In ourselves, we are not able to claim anything. The power to do what we do comes from God. He has given us the power to serve under a new covenant. The covenant is not based on a written law of Moses. Now, we have this thing called the Old Testament and the New Testament in our Bibles. Don't confuse those. That's not the Old, Te- the old Covenant and the New Covenant. Those are a little bit different. Now, the Old Covenant is given in the Old Testament, and the New Covenant is given in the New Testament, but it's not the same thing. New Covenant, Old Covenant, different. And he's going to start comparing them right now. He's going to compare the Old Covenant from Moses. He said it was written on the law of Moses. It comes from the Holy Spirit. The written law kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's in it's important to understand the law was given to us by God. The law was given to us by God. The law was written in letters on stone. Even though it was a way of serving God, it led to death. We're going to talk about that more in a second. 
But even that way of serving God came with glory. And this is interesting. He's saying even that had God's glory on it. And we have to, we have to recognize that. In fact, the glory may have lasted only a short time, but the people of Israel couldn't look at Moses' face. And this is, uh, he's calling back, if you, if you read the book of Exodus, when he comes down with the Ten Commandments, some, from just being with God for 40 days, his face was glowing. And the people said, we can't even look at you. You're too righteous. Uh, put a veil on. And he had to wear a veil so they could even look at him. He was just, just from residual glory, from just being with God, was shining in his face. It says, um, since all this is true, won't the work of the Holy Spirit be even more glorious? So this is better than what Moses gave you. The law that condemns people to death had glory. How much more glory does the work of the Spirit have? His work makes people righteous with God. The glory of the old covenant is nothing compared to the far greater glory of the new. The glory of the old lasts for only a short time. How much greater is the glory of the new? It will last forever. Since we have that kind of hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses. He used to cover his face with a veil. That was to keep the people of Israel from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made stubborn, and to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. The veil has not been removed. And when he's saying there, he says, look, they, they saw the glory, they understood that, but their hearts became hard, and they wouldn't recognize it. And he says, to this day, when they read it, they don't recognize it. And by the way, to this day, when they read it, they don't recognize it. They don't recognize the glory of God in it. They think it's just a bunch of rules. And in fact, today, they think they're all a bunch of historic rules. And so he's saying that was the problem with it is that they, they didn't take it seriously because only faith in Christ can take away that veil where you see things clearly. The law of, to this day, when the law of Moses is read, a veil covers the minds of those who hear it. But when anyone turns to the Lord, that veil gets taken away. Now, the Lord is the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, freedom is also there. That's about the only part of 2 Corinthians 3 everybody knows. There's actually a song like that, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We sing it here in the church. Now, that's part of, a part of all this. But none of our faces are covered with a veil. All of us can see the Lord's glory and think deeply about it. So we are being changed to become more like him so that we have more and more glory. And this glory comes from the Lord, who is the Holy Spirit. So there's a couple things we have to realize is what he's saying here is the glory of the Holy Spirit from the New Covenant is much better than the glory of Moses from the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. Also, there are things about the New Covenant that's going to help us that the Old Covenant never could. For one thing, it can change us. And we're going to talk about this more. So there is a contrast here between the Old and New Covenant. The Old Covenant was given to us by God and it was good, but we have to recognize the New Covenant is better. I'm making all this clear because I think a lot of us are still trying to live by the Old Covenant. And I'm going to talk about that. And this is something we call, um, there's a word for that. It's kind of a, a, an ugly word in Christianity, something called legalism. Let me just stop right here. Is everybody okay with the temperature? You guys cold? You good? Everybody good? Everybody's nodding good? Okay. Just make sure because usually I have Stas here who monitors that, but he's gone. So, or Victoria monitors it. All right. Legalism. Now, legalism is an ugly word in Christianity. Oh, I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want to, and we know that, but we don't really know why, because we've never been legalistic. Like in this country, we've never been legalistic. Now, there are denominations that are much more legalistic. The Roman Catholic Church is very legalistic. And what I mean by that is you have rules you follow. If you follow the rules, you get grace dispensed to you. That's literally the term they use. And if you don't get the grace dispensed to you, then you're going to hell. So you have to have 
gone to confession in order to take communion. You have to take communion to get your sins forgiven. You have to be right like that before you can get your last rites. You know, there's, all these, there's these things. This, this is what you would call legalism. You follow these rules, and it you know, gives you your righteousness as you follow the rules. And so that's nothing, by the way, compared to what the Pharisees had going for them in Jesus' day. They had so many rules, people couldn't stand a chance of following them because they took the, the law of God and just added a bunch of stuff to it. But we don't really, as Protestants, if you grew up as Protestant, um, then you don't really know what legalism even really means. It cracks me up when people tell me, oh, I don't want to be legalistic. I had a guy, um, he used to come to church, tell me once, I'm a little uncomfortable with your legalistic teaching on tithing. I said, oh, okay, you know, let's talk about that. Um, what part of it's legalistic? I'm, I'm just preaching what I think is in the scriptures. He goes, well, but it's really um, improper teaching there. I said, okay, uh, uh, where, does this, where, where, does, where does this idea come from? Oh, I saw a guy on YouTube. I said, oh, well, you know, <laughs> I only have the scriptures. You got a guy on YouTube. Please tell me more. I would love to be educated here. He says, well, here's how this is really working. He's like explaining it to me because this guy saw on YouTube. He says, um, tithing only had one purpose. I said, okay. He said it was created by Moses in Mo- the time of Moses, uh, something called Mosaic Law. It's a Mosaic Law, and it was actually done for a party. This is interesting. Go on. It says, but if you read the scriptures, it'll tell you that the tithe was taken up to Jerusalem once a year, and they had a big feast. And uh, that was what the tithe was for. And if you couldn't make it to Jerusalem, you were to sell stuff, get money, and then you would have a smaller feast in whatever city you were in. So it was just a way, really, of paying for the feast. And that was the only purpose of tithing. Since all that's gone away, since we don't go to Jerusalem for a feast or anything, none of that matters, which is why he says you'll see that in the New Testament, there is no tithing mentioned. It's, it's an Old Testament teaching, and the fact that you keep in, you know, talking about it as though it's real is very legalistic. And then, you know, he kind of was all done, and what do you think about that? I said, well, what I think about is your friend on YouTube is wrong at least in three areas. First of all, tithing is not Mosaic law. Tithing predates Mosaic law. You'll see Abraham in the book of Genesis tithe 10% to Melchizedek, who is seen as a high priest of heaven because later Jesus is compared to him. So that predates Moses by centuries. So first of all, that's, that's not true. Uh, second of all, that wasn't the purpose of tithing. If you read the, the whole Leviticus, which I'm sure your friend on the YouTube channel may have, but you haven't, uh, you'll see that when the Israelites took the promised land, the Levites don't get a land. They're a tribe and they get no land. Um, and the reason why, ha- why that happens is Joseph's tribe actually splits into two. So there was 12 tribes, but Joseph gets two, and Levites get none. And that's how that works. And the reason the Levites got no land was because they were the priests of Israel. And so their job was to take care of the temple. And they were only allowed to have very little tiny plots where they could like plant herbs and things, like a little tiny house garden sort of a thing. That's all they're allowed to do because their job was to stay you know, dedicated to serving the Lord. And that's it. In order to pay for that, all of Israel chipped in 10% to pay for the temple and to pay for the people who worked in the temple so that could keep on going and the priests wouldn't have to go out and work. That was the purpose of tithing. And you're also wrong on the New Testament thing because Jesus Christ himself talks about tithing in the New Testament. And um, he co- he's talking to Pharisees, who part of this temple system, and the Pharisees were very, very good at making sure they tithed everything, even down to the mint in their garden. They had these little tiny gardens. They'd actually get 10% of mint, and they'd spread it on the altar. They'd actually tithe just down there. That's how legalistic they were. And Jesus calls them out on it and says, look, you tithe all the way down to 10% of the mint. And then he says this, 
which you should do. But don't ignore your job. Your job is to dispense justice and mercy, and you're not. He says, so it's okay that you're doing this, but that doesn't get you out of doing your job. And that's, I think, a lot of people think. If I get enough money in the church, I can do anything I want. That's not the teaching of Jesus Christ. He says, you don't get out of your job because you're tithing. You should tithe, but then you should also do your job. In their case, they're supposed to be offering mercy to people, and they weren't. And so that's, you know, what, uh, what Jesus says. So I said, what do you think about that? He said, well, and this blew me away. Jesus wasn't part of the new covenant. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's new. He says, technically, um, the new covenant starts with Jesus' resurrection. So actually, everything he says prior to his resurrection doesn't count. I think, man, who's being legalistic now? Um, but so what you're telling me is that since he, since he was preaching to Jews, none of his teaching before he died and was raised again counts. So the Sermon on the Mount doesn't count. We can throw that out. He was preaching to Jews. You know, should we, should we throw out all of his teaching prior to that little tiny bit, that one little tiny chapter that we, we have just a little kind of stuff that he talks about after he gets resurrected? Everything else was Old Covenant? Is that what you're telling me? I think you better go back and watch your YouTube channel some more because that can't be right. Or you're not a Christian, you're a Paulian. You don't follow Jesus Christ, you follow the letters of Paul. And so what I've discovered, why I go through all that, is that most people who say, I don't want to be legalistic, are really saying there's something in the Bible I don't want to do, and I'm going to call that legal so I don't have to do it. And that's not the purpose of legalism. That's not what the Old Covenant was. That's not what it's designed to be. So let me, uh, let me talk about the Old Covenant now. In, in Deuteronomy, which is Moses' big sermon, where he sums up the first four books. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, last book of the Pentateuch, and he, he sums up all the other stuff he wrote all right, in the book of Deuteronomy. It's this great sermon, uh, second most quoted book of the Bible by Jesus. Psalms is number one, Deuteronomy is number two. This is what he says. See, I am setting before you a, ble a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, the commandments are all of them, not just those 10 on tablets, all of them. Then, which I'm giving you today, and the curse if you don't listen. If you turn aside from this and you follow false gods, then you're going to be cursed. If you follow me and you follow my commandments, then you're going to be blessed. So you have this choice here between do you want a blessing or do you want a curse? Now, this is legalism. There's nothing wrong with it. It's actually a very pure form of government. Some of you use it in your households. I'm going to call it uh, voluntary compliance, but you could also call it moral leadership. There's nothing immoral about this. In fact, there's only two ways that you can compel people to do what you want them to do. There's only two ways. And legalism is one of them, and it's the most widely used one. Uh, you may, you know, they're in here they're talking about the blessing and a curse. But we have another word for it. We use reward and punishment. Okay, we use this in, in, in a home. And, and, and parents use this all the time with their kids, right? Because theoretically, the parents are in charge of the home. And so they'll say, okay, if you clean your room, give you a cookie. That's a reward. If you don't clean your room, if it's my dad, I'm going to beat the living tar out of you. That was a punishment, right? I don't know what the living tar is. I just knew I didn't want to have it beat out of me. I'd, you know, that's my father's favorite expressions, uh, although he never threatened me with it over a room. But I got threatened to have the living tar beat out of me a lot for my dad. So uh, reward and punishment. The most effective means is both. You give them reward to do right, you give them punishment to do wrong. If you follow this model, you will have kids who follow along. And they'll do what you want them to do because they understand it's in their best interest to do so. By the way, just interestingly enough, uh, psychologists have measured this. The best punishment is administered immediately. It doesn't have to be a hard punishment or a harsh punishment, 
But if you said it's going to be done, it needs to be done immediately. Delayed punishment doesn't work as well. On the other hand, strangely, delayed rewards do work very well. <laughs> so you, know, you kind of have this, this balance there. It has to do with the, the, human, um, the human condition. All right, the other thing that you'll see this described as, and this is if, if we look in terms of government, this is how governments use. Uh, and, and we actually have two different forms of it. Like if you take communism and compare it to capitalism, it's this, bribe and threat. Now, bribe plays into a person's greed. I'll give you 100 cookies if you do it. Right? I've been up long enough, people will do it. Sooner or later, you can get to a price that people are willing to do almost anything for, right? So I'm going to play on your greed. So uh, we do that, this government. If you do the right thing, we'll give you tax write-off. Yeah, we want you to give money to charities. So if you give money to charities, you don't have to pay as much taxes. Yeah, so this is, this is a bribe. And there's all kinds of different bribes that are set up in a capitalistic society. If you do this, you're going to get something. You get a bonus. You work harder, I'll give you a bonus. These, this is a bribe. This is the bribe. Uh, threat is the part placed in the fear. The communists were good at this, you know. Big Brother's watching. They're coming to get you. That's a threat. And so, uh, you know, th these both work together, and you can run a government this way. So um, the only thing, though, is that this only works if the person operates in their own self-interest. It works best with selfish people. The more selfish the person, the easier it is to control them with reward and punishment because they're always looking out for their best interest. If you know this person will always do what's best for them, it is easy to set up a system that works with them. The hard thing is that people are ambivalent about things. I don't care. You know, kill me, I don't care. That's a hard person to motivate. You know? So this works best if somebody's in, always operating in their, in their, in their self-interest. And so that's what you kind of have to foster, a, a kind of a little bit of a selfish attitude. And it was designed specifically for self-centered people. In fact, this is what um, Jeremiah calls back in the Deuteronomy and says, this is what I commanded them. I said, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people and you will walk in all the way which I commanded you that it may be well for you, right? That things are going to go well for you. Here's why you should obey God. Your life will be better. That's still being preached today, by the way. If you obey God, God will bless you. So now, here's why you tithe, because God will give you more money than you give him. That's a message from some people. Can't outgive God. So that's, that's not the way it was originally set, set up, but this is the bribe. You know, America takes it, and we tweak it. We're going to bribe you. If you give, if you give uh, to this church sacrificially, God will bless you mightily. If I get you all believing that, and you serve your own self-interests, well, then that's what I should do. That's the smartest thing I could do with my money. See, it's a bribe. That's what that is for. That it may be well with you. And there's a lot of things that, that, that are taught this way. Do this because it'll be better for you. I've preached that. Do this because it will be better for you. If you do this, you'll live better. You need to read your Bible, it'll be better for you. You need to pray more, it'll be better for you. And I, I do that because I'm trying to convince people to do it. And it, they don't seem motivated. If you would do these things, your life would go well. That's, that's the whole idea behind it. Now, is there anything wrong with the law? No, the law is perfect, in fact. In Psalms, the psalmist says this, the law of the Lord is perfect. See, I told you, the law is perfect. And, and he goes on and says, it restores the soul. The testament of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the dripping from a honeycomb. He's saying the law is perfect. If you follow the law, you will live a better life. 
you should follow the law. There's nothing wrong with the law except it has three major flaws. It's just, it's moral, but there's three things it can't do. So I'm going to give you three problems with the law. First of all, it cannot forgive. There's no mercy in the law. There's only justice. Those are two different things. And depending if you're guilty or not, depends if you want justice or mercy. If you, know you're, if you know you're guilty, then you want mercy. But if you know you're innocent, you demand justice, right? I demand justice. But the law cannot give you mercy. It can only give you justice. Let me give you an example. You're a parent. You've got two kids sitting in the back, and it's a three-hour drive to Grandma's house. And you say, look, I don't want to hear any fighting coming out of that back seat. And if I hear any fighting at all, no ice cream when we get to Grandma's. But if we get to grandma's and no fighting, then I will take you out to, to the ice cream parlor and we'll, have, we'll all have ice cream. And you start off and you're five minutes into the ride and the kids are fighting. Hey, what did I tell you guys? Oh, yeah, right, right, right. And they shut up for the rest of the ride. They went two hours and 55 minutes in perfect angelhood. But those first five minutes, you can't give them ice cream. Not according to the law. There's no forgiveness. Sorry. We, we understand the preponderance of what you did was better than a little, but, but that's all it took because the law was this. If you don't fight, you get ice cream. You fought, no ice cream. There's no way to forgive. Secondly, it cannot save, which kind of is another level of this. If the law says you have to be killed because you did this, then guess what? You're going to be killed. It doesn't matter if I try to change my ways. It does not matter. It won't make any difference because you broke the law. You're dead. And this is the big problem with the law. We all broke it. <laughs> so start trying to say, well, I want to live by the law is a really dangerous approach for us because we've all broken the law and we've broken enough law to condemn us to death. And finally, and this is the biggest thing, if we come back to what Paul was saying, um, it can't change you. Remember, he says the purpose of Jesus coming was to change you. The law can't change you. The law can only punish you if you do wrong and the law can only reward you if you do right. It doesn't care if you're changed or not. Uh, we had a law in this country, some of you have read about it, I don't think anybody lived through it, the Prohibition. We actually outlawed alcohol here, and all it did was it made all the gangs of Chicago become super gangs, you know. And so um, they, they created this, some of you watched the movies, this organization called the Untouchables, led by this guy named Elliot Ness, right? And his whole job was to break the organized crime because they're making millions off of illegal alcohol sale because it turns out outlawing it didn't stop it. <laughs> it just went underground where all the gangsters were making the money. So they tried that little experiment with prohibition for several years. Elliot Ness is famous for his fight against organized crime. But then they decided, okay, this is stupid. Um, we're losing out a lot of tax money and they're making lots of money. Let's just legalize it again. So they repealed prohibition. And so whenever that happened, the untouchables were disbanded. They didn't need them anymore. It was no longer illegal to sell booze. And so a reporter walked into Elliot Ness's office as he's packing up his stuff and said, Mr. Ness, what are you going to do now that prohibition has been repealed? He said, I'm going to go have a drink, right? Because the law doesn't change you. And he wanted to have a drink. He may have had a drink. I don't even know. But the law doesn't change you. We know if, if uh, you talk to anybody who's worked in prisons, they'll tell you. A person goes in, commits a crime, gets sent to prison. They don't come out changed. It, they come out a better criminal nine times out of ten because they didn't sit there thinking, oh, man, I need to change my ways. They thought, man, I never want to get caught again. It's different, right? And so they actually sit around and talk to each other about how did you get caught? They figure out what they could do. So next time I do this, I'm not going to get caught. Very, very few people come out rehabilitated. And if they did, it was not because of the jail. It's because something else took place. People do change, but not because of the law. The law can't change you. And that is why 
Jesus came and brought us the gospel. Because the gospel says, I want to forgive you, I want to save you, and I want to change you. And that was the purpose of the gospel. So the gospel, this is what Paul was saying, the gospel has greater glory than, 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 the, old, than the old covenant. The law is built on fear and greed, or it's built on reward and punishment, or it's built on blessings and curses. The gospel is built on love and trust. Wholly different way of looking at it. But this only when I talked about the, the law works best with selfish people, this only works if God's in the center of your life. It won't work with selfish people. It won't work. Because you don't truly trust God and you don't truly love God. You, you love him to a point and you trust him to a point, but he can't save you if that's where it is. You have to have him at the center of everything in order to truly love him and truly trust him. And we're kind of going through that right now in our house, right? Because we've prayed for a healing that hasn't come. In fact, we've been told it's not going to come. You're going to get through it. It's not, it's not going to be a miraculous healing. It's going to be a normal healing. Well, that's not fair. That's not right. Victoria's a good person. I hear other people getting healed. Why is Victoria not getting healed? Victoria's done a lot of good things. Why is she not? Um, why is she not getting healed? I had um, somebody cry, you know, really, literally crying when they you know, were talking to Victoria. She said, I don't understand. You're such a good person. You try to help people. Why would this happen to you? Right. We can ask those questions if we're in the Old Testament. Because what we're saying is, look, we've lived a righteous life. We follow the commandments. We should get the blessing, not the curse. That works in the old covenant, but it doesn't work in the new covenant. In the new covenant, we say, you know what? Here's what I know. God loves me and I love God. And I don't understand this, but I'm going to trust him anyway. So many times in our Christian walk, we say we want this, but then we say, you know what? I'll just take the cookie, God. <laughs> I did something good. Can you give me the cookie? I don't think it's fair that I'm suffering here. Give me the cookie. And we start praying for cookies. <laughs> Look at me. I've done all the great things. I'm, I'm trying to turn things. Why can you not give this to me? And God says, I'm not trying to deal with you and the old covenant. I'm trying to deal with you with this covenant in which God's in the center and you trust him and you love him. And actually, someone here will do far more than someone under the old covenant. There's a story that I was told was true by the person who told it to me. I don't know if it's true, but it's great stories. So I'm going to tell it to you as though it is. Uh, I, I don't know the people involved. This takes place like early 1900s. This woman marries this banker. He was an older gentleman, well-established bachelor, very rich, also very well thought of in the community. He was a moral man, a good man, ran a tight ship at the bank, but he was fair. And um, he courted this younger lady and, and she was kind of over the moon. Because this was the best thing that can happen. This is the early 1900s. The women don't have much choice but marry well. That's really the whole purpose of being a woman in the early 1900s was to marry well. That was what they focused on. And this was the best match in town. So they, after a quick courtship, they get married. She moves in this big, beautiful house, you know, bigger than anything she could have imagined. Everything's perfect. Uh, and what she found out, though, quickly was her husband ran his home the same way he ran his bank. And uh, he had certain expectations now that she was his wife, and she was to take care of the house. In fact, every day before he went to work, he would leave her a list of things he wanted to see done that day. Now, she was young, and she knew how to do some of the stuff, but some of the stuff was still kind of new to her. 
and uh, she would try it, and sometimes she wouldn't know how, and, and sometimes she got caught up on something, she didn't finish it in time. But when he came home, if she had not completed the list correctly, he would punish her. Again, this is the 1900s. Uh, women were kind of, kind of a little bit like possessions of the husband back then. So he would whip her. He had a switch that he would use on her if she was bad. Uh, he also sometimes would lock her in a bedroom and not let her eat supper because she did not finish her list. And a lot of times she thought she finished the list. It's just she, she didn't do it right. You know, she didn't know what she was doing in some things. And every day this happened. Some day she got out and then she'd get a, you know, new dress bought for her because she got a list done or something and some days um, something was wrong and she'd be punished and after a sh very short time of this she lived in fear of her husband but there was nothing she could do about it that was actually completely legal in those days and so uh, she would dread those lists that were given to her every day and uh, but she had to try to do them because there was no way out she was literally trapped in a hell as far as she was concerned and she would do anything to go back and say no when he asked her to marry her but it's too late but after about two years, her husband goes to work one day and has a heart attack and dies. So I guess we call that providential, good news, whatever. And she was finally free of the tyranny. Now, he had a will that didn't give her very much, but she didn't care. She got her clothes and some other things and a little small bit of money, and she was just so happy to be out of it, she didn't care. She swore she'd never marry again. She moved in a little, little tiny small apartment, and she got a job as a waitress. And she started working for a living, and she was fine with that. But she swore she'd never, ever get married again. Well, it turns out that there was a customer who came in and started flirting with her. And it kind of kept going. And she kind of liked it a little bit. And then he'd ask her out. She goes, no. And I've been down that road not doing it. But then he kept working on her. Eventually she went out. She kind of liked him. And then finally he asked her to marry him. And she says, no, I'll never get married again. And she tells him the story. And he is just horrified. He said, I would never do that to you. I would never do that to anybody, let alone you. So after some time, he wore her down, and she did marry him. And so it took a whole couple years before she relaxed in the marriage because she kept waiting for him to change because that's what had happened before. And uh, finally, she realized he's just not going to change. This is who he is. And she relaxed, and she started having a happy marriage finally. And um, so they were getting ready to have their fifth wedding anniversary, and uh, he was coming home a little early, and she was cooking a special meal that she knew was his favorite. And she kind of wanted to set the, set the stage a little bit, you know, so when he walked in the door, just wow him a little bit. And so she was busy doing that, and she went outside to just really make sure she's got everything. She's going to clean the porch, too. She doesn't want anything messing up the entrance, the grand entrance into the room that she's prepared. And so she puts on her, her, this old house coat she had, and she was, you know, sweeping out the floor. And then she's coming back in, and she sticks her hand in the pocket, and she feels a piece of paper. And she what is that? She hasn't had his coat on in years. But she so pulls that piece of paper out, and it's one of those lists that her first husband had given her. And uh, suddenly, all those feelings come flooding back. Right? She feels that dread, and she can feel that, just like it was yesterday. And with trepidation, she opens this piece of paper to see what it said. And she reads the list, and she starts to cry because she realizes everything that she had done that day was on that list and more. She had done everything on that list and more but she'd been happy the whole day because she did it out of love. She really, truly loved her husband and she realized that this was what, what love was about, right? If you truly, truly love someone, you do so much more. You're not doing the letter of the law. You're looking for the spirit of the law. That's how it works. And suddenly, it becomes much, much easier for us to, to realize, I, I want to do this stuff that God has told me to do because I want to do it, 
not because it will go well with me, but because I honestly want to do it. When Victoria and I were, those of you know our story, when we were engaged, we had to wait for the INS to allow her to come over. We had seven months waiting. Um, I wrote her every day. She wrote me almost every day. And uh, it was very difficult for her to write back and even get my emails. Uh, she had to walk 45 minutes to her, to her father's place of work, which is the only computer they had. And uh, she would download my letters, and her English was only this much. And so she'd run through a translator. And nowadays, we've got Google Translate. It's really good. But then they had really horrible translators. We had some hilarious translations. And so she would sit there then uh, reading it, and she'd get out of the English-Russian dictionary, and she would write in the right proper translation. It would take her, once she got the letter, an hour to read a simple one-page letter. And uh, then I'd walk back. You know, when she got printed off, I'd walk back. She never once told me, you know what, Pfft, you write me too much. You know, these everyday letters are getting on me. You know, I, I, it takes too long. Could you cut it back? Maybe once a week write me. How about that? This is a, No, she never, ever complained about it. In fact, she'd want to know why that letter was so short, if it was short. You know, what, what's up? Why didn't I get a bigger letter? It was never a burden for her because she was in love, and, and she wanted to read a letter. And yet, boy, Christians can't crack the Bible, you know? And it's like, unless, the, unless God says you must do it and give you a commandment, it's like, I ain't doing that. I don't want to do it. If you're in love with someone, you want to read what they said to you. You just want to. If you really love somebody, you, you want to talk to them. That's called prayer. If we really love God, we will do all the commandments and more. That's what Paul was saying. But what we want to do is we want to pick and choose. We want the forgiveness of the gospel, but we want the rewards of the law only when we've done the right thing. When we do the wrong thing, then we run back and we fall on the mercy of the court and say, God, you love me, right? I screwed up. And we want to try to jump between these two things. And God's saying, no. You're either going to live by the law and you don't want to live by the law. Or you're going to live by the gospel. And if we understand what the gospel gives us and we realize that this is God just loving us and us loving God, then we realize that we're not just following God for a blessing and a curse. I'm not saying, God, I want my cookie today. I'm not saying, I've been a good boy, give me a cookie. I'm saying, God, I love you. Speak to me. I want to hear you. I want to hear your voice. I want to do what you want to do. And then everything else in the Bible makes sense. Some of these scriptures that don't seem to make sense, like John 14, make a lot more sense. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, right? He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Boy, we want to circle that one in our Bible. And I want to claim that. God, I need a healing for Victoria. I'm going to circle that promise and say, give it to me because you said so. But it's not always said. He said, I'll do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I don't want that part. That part I don't like. He says, I love you. I'll do things for you. You love me. You'll do things for me. Isn't that the way love works, folks? I think everybody here has been in love at some point in their life. Isn't that the way love's supposed to work? Yeah, I've been taking care of Victoria these, this past week. Um, in some ways, she's, she's incredibly easy to take care of. Food is always easy. Um, I brought her breakfast the other day that I made. You know, I'm not really great making eggs. So I got some beets. Uh, you know, Ukrainians and Russians, they love beets. And so I put some beets on the thing. I don't even know if they go with eggs. But I figure it's a little splash of color at least, you know. I take her to oh, beets. She was so happy, you know. So the eggs were broken. But you gave me beets, you know. She was so happy. Didn't take much. But um, she feels guilty. And she says, you know, I feel bad for you that you're doing all this. Why would you feel bad for me? You know, isn't this what love is supposed to be, right? You'll take care of me. And even in her state right now that it burns to get outside, if I needed her to go outside and get something, she'd do it. 
you know, even though she knows to bring her pain. Because that's what love is supposed to be. It's supposed to be this, this give and this take. And that's what Jesus is laying out here. Look, you can ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. But you're doing for me, right? You're following the commandments I gave you, right? Because we love each other. We, we got this relationship, this deep relationship. I will ask the Father, he goes on, and he'll give you another helper that he will be with you forever. That's the Holy Spirit. We can't have the Holy Spirit, but you'll get the Holy Spirit. So I want you to see that Jesus is actually sandwiched. I'm going to do anything. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, but you're going to follow my commandments. And we like, I want the Holy Spirit. I want to ask anything in my name, but I don't like this part about following your commandments because some of your commandments are hard. You tell me to love those who persecute me. You, you tell me to, to do all these things, and I don't want to do those things. So I want the promise at the top and the bottom. Those are the cookies I want, but I don't want this. And we keep treating him like he's the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And Jesus is like, no, this is all about love and trust. Do you love me? Do you trust me? The gospel of peace is given to those who love and trust the Lord. The question is, which side do you want to follow? Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for being patient with us as we learn so.